In the last episode of the podcast, we were talking about The Wild Great Wall, a collection of poetry by Zhu Zhu, translated by Dong Li. Well, exciting news for this episode. Pretty much the whole thing is me interviewing Dong Li, and I learned some amazing things, like how he found himself in the desert. But uh, before we can get to the interview, I'd just like to do my plugs. So, first of all, if you want the latest news on the podcast, the Instagram is the best place to go. It's at, at trchfic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C, for, of course, translated Chinese fiction. You'll find out what the next episode will be about on there ahead of time, which is always fun, and I also share fun wee nuggets there as well. Um, the other thing I'd like to plug is the Patreon I've opened for the show. Basically, because I'm paying about 100 pounds a year to get my SoundCloud hosting and you know I'm not a rich man so if you'd like to set up a monthly recurring donation to the show uh, you can get a shout out for yourself for two dollars a month if you give twenty dollars I'll just let you dictate any episode topic you like Um, I'm also probably going to open up a PayPal so you can make a one-off donation rather than a monthly one Obviously, if you can't afford to um, contribute to the show, don't. Just enjoy the episodes. The whole point of podcasts is they're free. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Here's the interview I had with the amazing Dong Li. Hey, everybody. We've got Dong Li on the show. He's the translator of Juju's uh, collection of poetry, The Wild Great Wall. So really excited to have you on. Uh, Dong, would you like to tell us some things about yourself before we get started? So uh, right now I'm based in Germany and we have good weather after a cold spell last week. Mm. So the weather is beautiful and uh, so um, and I'm sort of an English language poet, but also I translate from uh, three languages: from the Chinese, from English, and from German. Cool. So how long have you been translating for now, professionally? I mean, professionally. I don't know whether I would call it professional, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> tricky word. Um, so I think it's after I started to write in English, like seriously, in the States. I spent 10 years, almost 10 years in the States, and uh, as I was sort of doing my master's in fine arts, and uh, I started to translate. That was the time I sort of picked up translation. And uh, first, with actually with literature, literary translation, and then I've also done my professional translations as well. Cool. So uh, what brought you to the States and what inspired you to start writing in English then? I think it's sort of a complicated, it's both complicated, the question is both complicated and easy. Right. So I had a scholarship, I was already studying in Beijing for a couple of years and uh, I was not very happy with the, with the courses and... Uh, so I applied to, you know, to study in the States. And as a transfer student, it was very difficult to get a scholarship. So I sort of applied to start over in the States. And uh, and uh, still it was sort of difficult, but I was, I was able to get a scholarship from a sort of unique college in the middle of the desert in California. Oh. Uh, it's called Dietrich College. And uh, so I got a scholarship, and I think it was really in the desert. I really got close to sort of poetry I think it's the desert I think mm-hmm. really it's the desert that gave me a sort of voice because you know, it's a very 
close-knit community with only 26 students, all male. Um, and the school just turned co-ed last year. And uh, but it has been it's been a sort of educational experiment for over 100 years. So it's it's sort of been there for a long time in the desert, mm-hmm. uh, sort of unknown outside of the United States. And uh, so that's where I really picked up English and did a lot of philosophy and uh, milked cows and. <laughs> It's also a cattle ranch, so every student has like manual duties on campus. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, so that was a really cool experience. So you're really in the American West, and uh, you're milking cows, and you know trying to do this social experiment, and in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the valley is about like an hour away from a village bishop, so it's uh, really in the middle of nowhere. You need uh, like an hour to get to the closest town. Um, so I think that isolation also helps quite a bit. So I think writing became a way of expressing myself, and I think I picked up English because it it gives me a little bit bit of distance from the experiences that I mm. uh, that I had. Because I think uh, the the poetic act or you know writing itself is pretty reflective, and uh, I think with some distance, and then you're dealing with you know I was dealing with some Chinese materials and. Uh, you know, using English, I think it opens up some kind of possibilities, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's how it sort of began. <laughs> that's an amazing story. So when I was um, looking for things to talk about in the episode about the Wild Great Wall, so I was looking for information about yourself and also Juju, and and just from reading your author bio, I would never have guessed that you'd done all that stuff in the desert. It's amazing. Um. So, next question. Uh, these days, what do you read for fun? Or, if fun's too frivolous a word, what do you read for pleasure? Um, I read a lot of German stuff uh, for fun and also for... Um, uh, because sort of I've been living in this country for quite a few years now and uh, I'm picking up the language and uh, also teach a translation class at a university mm. from German to Chinese. So I um, I do read four classes, but I also read a lot of uh, you know German poetry. I picked up uh, and also I read French. So I also read uh, um, French authors really for fun. That's sort of meditative for me. Uh, I love France and uh, um, I've been to France a lot of times and uh, and I still sort of love that kind of the language and the literature. And so now in Germany, I'm I'm reading a little bit of more French literature for fun. Yeah, that was something I so I know that you didn't write the Wild Great Wall, but I remember noticing as I was reading through that a lot of the references to Western things were continental European things. So it seems like that's right up your alley. Yeah, exactly. So so actually, uh, I think in the last episode you mentioned the Baudelaire quote, right? So I thought, wow, that's yeah. a really famous poem I recited before, and uh, so 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 I just used the French version. I thought that would be. Mm. To have the original instead of an English translation, and they sort of have to explain, right, uh, what that English trans, you know, which English translation you know, should be the one to mm-hmm. put on, and so forth. I thought, okay, I'll just put on the original. Yeah, well, it's an interesting choice. Um, so, jumping forward a wee bit to the Wild Great Wall and Juju. So, I know that the article you put on World Literature Today. Talked a wee bit about how you guys first kind of connected 
but I wanted to know、uh, how long had you been reading his poetry before you reached out to him? I think it was sort of.、Um, I think it was in, in grad school. I was doing this master of fine arts in creative writing, and I was writing my own poems in English. And、uh, I was sort of also translating quite a bit of authors. And、uh, no, actually, it was before that. I did my undergrad in comparative literature, and I did a thesis on、um, translation, translating Chinese poetry. So at that time, I was looking at authors, and uh, so um, I was sort of pretty、um, struck by Zhu Zhu's brilliance at the time.、Mm. I thought very different from the other authors, especially the authors. Who've been known in the U.S. like the Monglong, the Misty School poets, or the Monglong School poets,、mm-hmm. uh, been known in the West for quite a while, and for political or ideological reasons, or you know, for their own poetic merits. Yeah,、and、I thought it was sort of quite interesting. It was also quite a quite a challenge to translate them, and、uh, so I, I showed some of my early translations to、uh, one of the professors there, and、uh, that professor was saying. Oh, maybe it's not the right or the perfect poet to translate, right?、Um, because I think people already have, you know, people in the translate literary translation world, they already have this sort of perception or an idea of how Chinese poetry should sound、right. and should be like, and what you know kind of themes they should touch on. And、uh, I think it was sort of a little bit different at the time. That was already quite a few years ago. That was probably. 2011, 2010, 2010, around 2010, 2009, 2009, I would say, and、um, so I was sort of challenged to. I thought, okay, I'll make it work. <laughs> so <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. So and then got in touch with him, and、uh, it was a little bit difficult because he's kind of a reserved person, and uh, and the、um, the presses in China they are very hard to get in touch, and they don't. Forward your information or your calls, authors. So it took me a little bit to get his phone number, and、uh, so I, then I got him on the phone, and、uh, he was sort of a little bit skeptical at, at first, right? Because you know this is guy only from you know the middle of nowhere from the U.S. and calling me and wanting to translate my poetry. Of course, I understand, and also, and also translating it into English, which is not my mother tongue. So of course, I, I totally understand. Yeah, well, I suppose that's the magic of the internet. You could, two people can kind of just throw out a line without having to necessarily go through person A, what you know, A, B, or C.、Um, what was I going? Oh, yes. So what you said about the kind of the resistance you met in the states about translating Juju because he was a bit different.、Uh, I think I might have a, an idea what your answer might be. But I'm not certain. So, what do you think sets Juju apart from other Chinese poets who are known in the West or in the English-speaking world? What's different about him? I think I think it, you know I it's a sort of I think it's a super complicated issue, and、uh, I think、uh, you know the so-called exiled poets. I don't necessarily think you know all their poems touch on the issues of exile, or or their poems are political. Um, but I think there there are some ideological issues behind that,、mm-hmm. and I think for him, I think he's just concerned about you know、um, about his own politics too. You know, sometimes、so、I would say also a little bit、um, 
sophistic, I would say. You know, he's yeah. very much concerned with his own politics. And uh, I think that to some extent, it's also um, another way of doing Chinese poetry. It's just sort of slightly different than the, um, the Mono school poets or the second generation of Mono school poets or the, you know, more academic poets or poets who are working academia. I think it's just a little bit different, a little bit of an outsider. He's not really in the scene in China at the time, but now he's sort of more and more visible in Chinese poetry, but at the time, I don't think he was um, very much in the scene. You know, he wasn't invited to a lot of uh, poetry festivals or conferences and stuff, um, so he's not really in the mainstream. And uh, even though he had um, sort of a couple prizes, um, I think, earlier in his career, and then it sort of stopped, because I think you know, he earned his bread by, by doing curation of art shows and stuff, and also by um, doing artists. And so he was, you know, slightly going off the grid for, for a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so I remember in my podcast, I mentioned the word exile that pops up in the poems a few times. And you mentioned uh, exile poets in one of your answers. So um, perhaps for my benefit and the listener's benefit uh what would you call an exiled chinese poet and is does juju is he himself an exile in your opinion i think i think uh, um you know for me every every poet is exiled mm-hmm. uh, before he or she finds finds the language right i think that's you know everybody is exiled to you know from an aesthetic point of view Everybody, every poet is exiled before he or she finds the language for, you know, for certain material. Um, I think the normal um, conception of an exiled Chinese poet is someone who's sort of living, um, who went through political persecution and then went overseas, right? I think that's the common conception of what an exiled Chinese poet is. And, uh, um, or those who are still living abroad and, um, but Juju, I think he's also exiled, but it's a kind of different exile, more like internal exile, because he's you know still living in China, working in China, and uh, thriving in China, I think. And uh, I think his exile is more internal. I think exile from peers, from his you know from the predominant um, poetic language at the time, and to that extent, I think he's sort of exiled, that he's having that internal exile. But overseas, he's also, you know, he's been travel, traveling quite a bit uh, overseas and becoming international. That's also a kind of exile, right? Because for sure. it's still difficult and he's not a super political poet and he does not claim, you know, to be a politically exiled poet, right? So he, he does not write about politics directly or about that, you know, that, that period. And uh, so I think he has this sort of double internal, but also external, internal exile, you know, in his home country, but also uh, external exile when he, whenever he's traveling overseas. Yeah, I suppose that's the cost of doing things your own way. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting answer. Um, so here's a question about yourself. 
Um, when you were putting together the Wild Great Wall, were you trying to put together kind of a whole picture of all of Juju's poetry? Or were you picking from his poetry selectively to build a particular feeling or a particular kind of collection? So um, I was actually, um, I was able to do the selection when Juju and I, we got a um, fellowship at the Vermont Studio Center, which is an artist colony in the in the US in Vermont and uh, they they started in 2013 or 2013 uh, a fellowship for Chinese poets and uh, um, translators of Chinese poetry so um, we got uh, a grant to um, to um, to have this residency together so at that time we sort of started to talk about um, putting together a book and uh, um, so I just I think the the selection was easier for me, and uh, even though I had some kind of resistance from Juju himself, um, I just picked all the poems that I liked, yeah. and uh, I let Juju strike out the poems that he did not like. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then of course, and then we sort of I was trying to um, put the um, put the poems that we both liked together, and uh, trying to find an arc. And then I thought maybe we'll just do the you know chronology, I yeah. think that would be sort of uh, easiest and also clear, because I think uh, um, for Juju, I think it's pretty clear, you know, those, those four periods, I think, you know, um, his poetics, how his poetics has evolved and developed uh, in those four periods. Yeah. Um, so I, because I only read through it once, I, I could feel a progression in maybe the places he was going to and from, but I think if you were to go for someone who didn't know the man himself, yeah, you you might have to go back and read a few times to see the 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 changes. But um, do you know anything? Do you know anything in his life that kind of made those um for? Is it, it's four periods, isn't it? It's not five. Four, four. Yeah. Is there any life events that split those things apart, or was it all kind of internal poetic stuff? I think I think in the first period, I think he was writing really isolated. He was super isolated, and uh, he actually he was teaching at a um, teaching law, I think, at a university in Shanghai. Interesting. And, uh, and then he quit his job. He quit his um, his uh, his job at the university to pursue writing, and it was quite difficult, you know, to to make. You know, to um, make your living by writing or writing poetry and so forth. And uh, so, in the first period, I think these poems are more ethereal. These are sort of this internal exile poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of my understanding of it, even though there's a lot of. I mean, he's reading uh, furiously at that time. I think that also helped to cure his loneliness at the time. Right. Uh, he have a lot of friends. So um, even during that time, he's. His uh, his reading was quite broad. That's why there were like François Villon and uh, Swedish friends and so forth. And uh, that's from that period. The second period, when he I think he made it uh, made a name by writing um, art criticism, and he moved to Beijing to you know to become a art curator, and uh, he has been quite successful. And at that time, I think uh, history really slowly comes into play in his poems. I think during that period was more like the blue smoke, the white great wall, small town and so forth. Not necessarily that he's writing about Beijing. Um, 
but I think history slowly enters um, enters into play uh, during that period. And then the third one, I think it's really the history is, is loaded with history and historical references, historical narratives. And uh, that's also a period when he's sort of, I think his outlook is becoming more international and a lot of travels and, and he was invited to France and to attend poetry festival and uh, and I mean he's he's been influenced by French modernist poetry by um, Baudelaire and so forth and uh, that that would be that period and the last period I think that's sort of uh, he's becoming sort of more outspoken I would say I think you referenced uh, uh, Florence the poem Florence in your in your last podcast and uh, he was saying okay you know. I mean, normally he's not so straightforward. I would say Dudu is not really a straightforward poet, and uh, he's been pretty straightforward, adamant about you know why should Chinese poets all write political poetry for a Western audience, right? Yeah. And they should also be able to you know write about beauty and truth, you know, the way they see it. Um, I think that's the sort of more outspoken period, even though most of the poems written during that period weren't that, you know, I've spoken except this one. Yeah, I suppose that's a wee irony that in saying, listen, I shouldn't have to be political, he's actually going from being not political at all to kind of indirectly political. Yeah, that's sort of his, uh, his uh, political gesture because to some extent, you know, if you're speaking for the poets or for yourself or for poetry and you're saying, okay, why should Chinese poets? So I think that's already a political stance that you're um, proposing. Sure. Okay, so another question about yourself and your translation is just um, which parts of the translation did you find uh, the hardest and what things were a lot easier? I think it's all very difficult. I think I'm a perfectionist, mm. so I, I, <laughs> I fail quite a bit and I always fail and, uh, you know, I'm still embarrassed by all my translations. So it's, it's kind of hard to say. And, uh, I, um, I don't have a favorite poem, right? I don't have a favorite translation, mm -hmm. but I do find, uh, um, the rhythm. It's hard to translate Juju's rhythm. I think it's not the words and so forth. I think it's the rhythm. He has a sort of a meandering, prosy rhythm. Um, in his poems, even though there are like passionate bursts right. you know, um, in between, I think it's those rhythms that are really hard to capture. I think it's also his tone is, you know, his tone comes throughout, you know, out from from those rhythms. So I think uh, I was having a bit of hard time capturing those rhythms. I think that's that's probably the hardest part to capture, especially in those more prosy poems. Okay. Makes sense. I mean, it's hard for me to, of course, I've only read the, the English translation, so it's hard for me to, to understand that one. But yeah, I can, I can kind of imagine. Um, so there was one word that I kind of waffled about in my podcast. It was uh, um, South of Yangtze, which I checked was a translation of Jiangnan. Um, I think I mentioned on the podcast, that was a word I learned when I was living in Shanghai, reflecting on the places I've lived in China, which was Shanghai, Zhejiang, and the places I've traveled, which were mostly Zhejiang and Jiangsu. Mm -hmm. So Jiangnan was a word that 
was on my mind fairly often. Anyway, um, was your translation to South of Yangtze, was that one that you felt was one of the trickier things, or do you think that's a fairly straightforward translation? I still I still feel that maybe I could do better, right? I think it's a hard one because the title is like a republic, right? Jiangnan Gonghe. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Jiangnan Republic. So you have to make Jiangnan into a place, into sort of a proper now. So I just, you know, took the easiest route and make it into south of Yangtze because I think Yangtze um, conjures up some kind of images of China. It's actually, Jiangna also refers to the Yangtze Delta geographically, yeah. right? And yeah. um, I don't necessarily want to use like Yangtze Delta, a republic, but that <laughs> sounds like, right? No, Ge- that sounds awful. Then, and then a republic, which is sort of political. And I feel like South of Yangtze, I think it could just do just, you know, a very straightforward, um, literal translation probably would do in this case because I really cannot find a better translation. Exactly. Because I, if you do like Jiangna, then they have, you know, anybody who's reading in English would not have any idea what that is. Exactly, yeah. Name. But with the Yangtze, that I think that really helps a little bit. South of Yangtze, they can imagine that's a place, south of Yangtze. And uh, then a republic, okay, that's sort of, you know, maybe a metaphorical republic. So I thought, okay, maybe... But that's tricky. You're right. That's a tricky one. Yeah. Were you tempted to leave a footnote for that one explaining what Jiangnan might mean? Or would that have just been too ridiculous? I intentionally uh, didn't want to leave a footnote because I feel like, because in that poem, Jiangnan Gonghe Guo, Yang South of Yangtze Republic, I think it's essentially, um, it has this um, historical allusion to, to Jiangnan, right? This, yeah. this place. Um, I feel like he's making it uh, metaphorical, so I thought, okay, it's better not to leave a footnote. If people, you know, people are interested, they could look it up. They could know right. the historical references. Mm-hmm. I just want to leave it a little bit more open. Yeah, I feel that's um, one kind of fun thing about living in this day and age is if you see a word you don't recognize in a book, whether it's a translated book or not, if you've got a smartphone in your pocket, you can just pop the word into Google and then see what Google tells you. Yeah, exactly. I think books come from books, right? Words come from other words. I think mm-hmm. that's that's that would be my, you know, that would, I think that's a great thing to have and to do is really to let readers to go to other words, other places, other books. This this book should be an invitation to other books. Yeah, absolutely. That's um some of the best books I've read have been just named in other books or have been kind of tangential rather than things I've, I don't know, been given for Christmas or found in a bestsellers list. Um, anyway, moving on to an almost completely different question. Um, sure. Are you a member of any Chinese to English or English to Chinese translation groups or any other different organizations or associations of translators? Um, I work with, uh, um, so I'm sort of, uh, I'm not an official member because, um, but I won a sort of Panheim grant, uh, from Pan America. Mm-hmm. So for my translation of not Juju, but, uh, but, uh, another Chinese poet only. And so I won a, a translation grant in 2015, uh, for translating the Chinese poet only. That's also why 
um, I actually that's also why I, I was able to publish this book with phone in media. That's uh, um, that's sort of the behind scenes story. Because oh, okay. Took, at the time, he was the founder of the pub, uh, the publishing house phone in media. He contacted me asking for my manuscript. But at that time, you know, as I uh, after I won the award, the manuscript of the other Chinese poet was not complete completed yet. So I said, okay, I have this manuscript ready <laughs> from Juju. Would you like to take a look? So that's, uh, yeah, but so, uh, anyways, so I'm actually, um, in the pen, pen network. Okay. And also recently I've been working with, uh, with, uh, with Pathlight. So Paper Republic, which oh, is awesome with Eric and uh, with Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy and Eric both are fabulous translators from the Chinese. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, so, so I, I do work for them as, as well. So, um, yeah. you know, I managed to sit down with Jeremy at the London Book Fair, and he's he's really funny. He made me laugh. <laughs> I have not met him personally yet, but we've been corresponding a lot uh, via email. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and me being this absolute junior who is not a translator myself. I just did try not to say anything stupid in case he, um, in case I made myself look like a fool. But that's that's cool because um, all the research I've been doing for my studies, a lot of it seems to point back to Paper Republic, and all the reading I was doing about you, it kind of seemed like you were kind of floating out there on your own. So it's cool to know that you're part of that organization. If not not like as an official member yeah. because I still still like my independence. Um, I like working for them on a case-by-case -case basis, right? So if they have a piece of uh, um, uh, poems or a piece of fiction or short story they will send it, you know, to me, and I'll take a look whether I could do it or not. And uh, so, but I enjoy working with them. I mean, they also have, a, a, you know, other great translators who are also like editors, like uh, Eleanor Goodman. She's uh, she's an editor for Life, and uh, she's also been great. Awesome. So speaking of being a little bit of a lone wolf, um, what's it like doing your work in Germany and in European mainland European languages rather than residing in, say, the US or the UK and strictly doing English and Chinese, Chinese and English? I think it's a personal choice. Um, um, of course, that personal choice also you know, comes at a cost. And uh, um, I do love the French and German languages, and uh, I started to learn uh, French and German in the States. And I was able to spend some time uh, with a couple of scholarships in, in Europe. And uh, I feel like I have some sort of a basic grip of the English language uh, up to now, and I feel like um, um, I want to expand myself. So, so I was, uh, I think, writing quite a bit in English and translating quite a bit. Um, I thought, okay, and also at that time I got two scholarships, and there, there was also a personal note to it, actually. Um, so I was, uh, you know, after my MFA, I got a fellowship, you know, as a poet of residence, in residence at Colgan University, upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, I was doing, like, residency hopping. Uh, so I was going through residencies, quite a few residencies, like seven or eight. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, in the U.S., and, uh, yeah, that was a fabulous experience for me. And I was also able to, you know, support myself and living on, like, 
two or three thousand dollars a year or something, and that was sort of fun. And then I was sort of a little bit sick of it because it's sort of you have two months or seven weeks or nine weeks here and there in between. You know, you're staying with friends and so forth. Yeah. I thought yeah, I really need to root somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's the exile life right there. Yeah, because for me, I, I really need to have you know the space, have a routine, you know, have a very boring life and not going out or not hanging out with a lot of people if I'm really immersed in a particular piece. Uh, so I, I, I found it at times a, a little bit frustrating. And then uh, so I was looking at fellowships. And so I got two fellowships in Germany. Um, so I was the Humboldt Fellowship and I was doing research as an editor on German, Chinese, and American poetry. And uh, and then I got a, um, another fellowship, I think, Writers should apply, so there's the Academy of Solitude, there's the Solitude. So basically, you are living in a, uh, in a castle with other artists of different disciplines. It's amazing. So from a cattle ranch to a castle. <laughs> a castle, yeah. Well. And you have your own studio in, in the castle. And I think the deadline is the, the end of this month. So I think, you know, other artists out there should apply. <laughs> yeah, and all. Um, all live it up in a castle. Yeah, so 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 I did that, and I, I um and at that time um one of my uh, great mentors died in the U.S. Oh. and uh, I was sort of I thought oh it's it's awful for me, and I thought that's also really a signal for me to you know to um, go on my own way, not just in poetry but also in life, really to. You know, to go my own way. So I thought, okay, why not? You know, uh, to be in Europe and uh, to um, to really understand some of the sources of you know European and American uh, poetry. I think it's like um, Pound said, Merwin should go to um, should go to France to study the troubadours, right? I think you know where the source language is, you know, and mm-hmm. I thought. That's an interesting thing. That's also quite ex- inspiring thing to hear. So I thought, okay, I love you know also the other languages, and uh, you know you have one lifetime. So uh, I'm not giving up. You know English or Chinese. I think maybe I'm just expanding myself with you know stumbling to expand myself. Well, I suppose this isn't a very genius point. It's quite obvious, but. Going from English into German and French, those are all languages in the same little, you know, family tree. So at least it's um, not as radical a leap as Chinese to English. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. If you're doing professional translation or literary translation, you'll notice that you'll have more pages if you're translating a piece of Chinese literature. If it's 25 pages, then you end up with 45 pages of English. Yeah. Yeah, concise language. Um, I have a, a pal, well, he's a pal, a guy who's in the writer's workshop I go to who's um, been successful with his children's lit book, and he, he's written it in English. It's not massive, but he has to, his editors told him he's got to cut it down by 20%, and the only reason is is because they want to translate it into German, and it's going to inflate with the translation. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think the Germans really, I mean, logic is very important in oh, yeah. So for the language, I think it's uh, it's sort of also like precise, but sometimes 
abstract, not very physical language. Yeah. And uh, so every language has, you know, its own qualities. And uh, I feel like, uh, you know, but it's everything, you know, every language is pointing to the language, you know, mm-hmm. the language that we all share. I think that's that's something I'm sort of going after to experience, you know, the different forms and uh, of that language and how it folds out in this time in history and in you know in a different form. So I, I really love just basic words, not necessarily like I love a particular language. I love these, you know, French, German, and English, Chinese, these languages, but also just words. Absolutely. Right. These these are the common treasure, I think, and uh, yeah, to to be part of it, to use it, and to you know to cherish it, not to abuse, fight for it. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that's that that gives me um, a great feeling. Hell yeah! Actually, what you said about uh, German being logical, it reminded me. So I did German in school for six okay. years. It's mostly forgotten <laughs> now, but um, a thing I liked about German was the spelling how it followed rules unlike English spelling and then the next language I learned to any degree was Chinese and my favorite thing about pinyin is that yeah it's like German the spelling doesn't mess around like English spelling does uh-huh yeah that's great so we have some uh, you know common languages yeah ambition ambition but yeah. really my my German is so faded that my Chinese is better than my German now and my Chinese isn't great so Anyway, it will <laughs> sorry, were you going to say something? It will come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, over time for sure. And I notice whenever, if I'm inside Germany, my German gets like twice as good. Things come back that have, you know, been sleeping. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, a, uh, just a, a word on the German language. I think the, the nouns are very proud because they're capitalized. Yeah. They're proud <laughs> in the language, right? And... Uh, and they also use it as, you know, it almost has a verb feeling to it. And uh, and also, I think the German adjectives they are not cluttered as cluttered as you know as English adjectives sometimes mm. because you have a lot of choices and sometimes you have a, you know the the adjectives are sort of clutters clutter the sentence. Interesting. So my next question is totally unrelated to everything we've just been talking about. Um, so this is, again, this is something I might be looking at in my dissertation that's coming up. So do you think that given the China, especially the, the People's Republic of China, it's got a rising kind of status in the world. We're hearing more about it in the news over here um, and so on. Do you think that's having an effect on what kind of Chinese writing is reaching English language readers? Um, I don't necessarily think it has, right now it has uh, an immediate effect yet, but I think there, there is a sort of growing sense of interest. Mm. I also work with, uh, with publishers and agents a little bit, and I do notice that uh, the rights situation um, is still not great. It's still very hard to sell um, Chinese authors in Europe or in the U.S. Right. So it's just growing... Uh, and I think it's, it really has to do with, uh, with the lack of great translators. Because the translation, um, in China in particular, is not paid well. It's not really respected. And, 
that respected, and uh, so so it's very hard to find really excellent translators. And uh, I think it's the same case um, in 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 the U.S. or you know, in Germany. It's really hard to you know find translators, and translators could not really survive by literary translation. Most of them cannot. Uh, right. so it's difficult. Mm. I remember. Um, so in my course, the only time anyone talked to me about buying and selling books rights between China, it was about academic publishing. So I asked my teacher, who's who's a German teacher, a postgrad student, a PhD student, I asked her, um, do the academic publishers have any trouble um, since rights are a little bit different in China with uh, the Western world? And she said, no, no, it's, no, it's no problem. But I suppose academic writing is one thing and, you know, trade fiction books are a totally different thing. You know, it's a different beast because I think a lot of academic books in Europe and particularly, um, they're pretty expensive. So um, usually uh, they have, uh, I think it's subsidized by by the writer itself or by, by the university. So it's uh, it's not meant for the, you know, the, the common audience. Yeah. Hmm. So um, on, on the note of interesting kinds of Chinese writing reaching the Western world. Um, the thing that really got me interested in all this stuff was probably when I first heard about uh, Santi, the three-body problem by um, Liu Cixin, uh-huh. and then noticing the other books translated by his translator, Ken Liu, um, that were starting to pop up in, in bookshops. Um, and online I'm seeing, maybe it's because of where I look online, but there seems to be, if not an increasing amount of coverage, at least a con- these things consistently are being covered in English. Mm-hmm. So do you have any, have you read any of these Chinese sci-fi books and do you have any thoughts about them? I have not uh, read any of the sci-fi books, but I do know they're, they're getting super popular in the States. And also um, getting very popular in Germany. I actually also know the two translators for his uh, Santi books here in Germany. So, um, so I think it's a fabulous thing. It's uh, sci-fi. It's um, you know, it's the general literature. But I, I do feel that's a great thing that's happening to to China and to Chinese authors. Mm-hmm. So it, it will be the beginning. And I also hope that people will, you know, will have more interest also in literature in more serious literature and uh, so I, yeah that would, but I don't have uh, have any opinion on the sci-fi sci-fi sure. books. Yeah. I, I can say um, a thing I, I liked about them was that so maybe maybe something you and Juju would uh, appreciate too is that although they've become popular in the West you know they're not taking an incredibly you know they're not taking a political view that Western audiences would soak up you know about how awful everything in China is but on the other hand they do have some interesting commentary and dimensions and all from kind of a Chinese perspective um, they're not massively political books at all but that that element's there and in an interesting way and that's oh. all I'll say without spoiling it <laughs> okay that's great so maybe I should I should read those books at, at some point yeah and there's um one I just finished reading recently it's a collection put together by Ken Leo um, and he's got a big intro and in the intro he does talk about ways western audiences might be tempted to read the stories 
in all the ways you might expect. And he says, here's why you shouldn't do that. Da, 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 da. And it kind of meshes with even things I was seeing in Juju's poetry. So I think, yeah, for, for people who are getting read in both places or working in translation, there seems to be this, I don't know, based on what I've seen, there's an awareness that there's like certain cliches that really ought to be avoided if you want to get a full appreciation of what Chinese writers are writing. Um, exactly. And also I have sort of two points, right? I think serious literature could also be popular. Being popular does not necessarily mean it does not have literary merits, right? Mm. That, that would be my view. And I, I hope books, you know, good books should be successful, good, you know, uh, I think as long as they're good books, right? Sure. And uh, the other thing I think people, you know, uh, who have you know certain uh, assumptions about China or Chinese literature? I think I hope they will you know have the opportunity. Now China is really sending you know supporting authors to go come overseas, and I hope they they will actually have the opportunity to meet those authors, right? To speak mm-hmm. to them and maybe through an interpreter to really have a real experience with them. I think or go to China, you know, have an experience to see for themselves, to judge for themselves, right? And uh, I think that will be more interesting. That will add an interesting layer to their um, to their reading experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I've forgotten her name, but there was at least one Chinese author in that collection, Invisible Planets, because the stories are ordered author by author. Okay. Uh, it's terrible. I don't have the book in front of me. I forgot her name, but she's an academic as well as a writer of of, of stories, and she. She's bilingual, so if she were to go over to, say, the states and give a, you know, do an author event, she wouldn't even need a translator. She could speak directly to her Western fans. But anyway, I'm I'm waffling. Um, so as a final question, because we're about reaching forty-five minutes now, which is usually about sure. how long the shows last. Sure. Um, yeah, we've been talking almost an hour. Crazy. Um, do you have any books? in any language, but probably especially English, um, that you'd like to recommend to listeners of the show? I, I don't know how many listeners we have, but for future, past, present, and future listeners, what would you recommend? I mean, I would recommend probably uh, first Lauren Niedeger, an American poet uh, who died, right? uh, who lived a miserable life and probably a little bit happy um, toward the end of her life. I think she's a fantastic poet. And uh, not so recognized. She was in the so-called objective, um, objectivist school of poetry. And, uh, so she would be a fantastic poet too. You know, I actually, at Deep Springs, you know, after I read Lori Niedeger, I thought, well, maybe I should also try to become an American poet. <laughs> mm. I'm sure they'd have you. Yeah. And then I would recommend sort of my, one of my mentors and, uh, um, C.D. Wright, who died a few years ago, and uh, so any books by C.D. Uh, would be great, and of course the um, Rosemary, Keith Waters, Forrest Gander, these are... That, was that the guy you mentioned earlier? Um, who died? Yeah. Uh, that's C.D., yeah, C.D. Wright. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so she's, uh, I think she's one of the, you know, to my mind, one of the greatest uh, poets. Uh, in American poetry, um, and actually I was compiling, I've been compiling, uh, a trilingual anthology, uh, 
in response to you know, one of her poems after she died. So this, this, this thing will be published in China and uh, most probably also in Germany. Cool. And just since it's what the show's about, is there anything that's been translated from Chinese to English that you could recommend for the listeners? From the Chinese into English? Yeah. Three of prose. Sorry? Poetry or prose? Oh, oh, oh. Um, well, since since you're a poet, maybe poetry, but um, feel free to name some prose as well if you like. Um, I mean, um, Zai for Press has been doing a lot of Chinese poetry through, uh, with in partnership with the University of Hong Kong. So they're introducing um, uh, a series of books by, by Chinese poets uh, for the past few years. So um, if you're really interested in Chinese poetry, so there are you know a lot of poets uh, in that um, series. So that's quite interesting. And uh, um, I think uh, um, translations by, um, by Jeffrey Yang, I, I really like um, many of his translations. Uh, he recently translated um, a prose book by, uh, by the Chinese poet Bei Dao. And, uh, oh, yeah. Like uh, some of Jeffrey Yang's work. I mean, he's also a poet, and uh, his own works I really admire, and also his translations. He's also a fabulous editor. If I remember right, um, didn't Jeffrey Yang translate one of the phoneme books, the Uyghurland one? Exactly. He translated um, the Uyghur one, and he translated um, Liu Xiaobo's um, notes, oh, yeah. and he also translated um, the great Zhong Dynasty poet Su Shi. Oh, that's quite a set right there. Well, thank- so David Hinton. David Hinton is also a classical poet, and he's, he's one of the best uh, translators. Nice. Well, thank you so much for your recommendations and for all your time. I think I'm all out of questions. So, yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. It's, uh, it's a beautiful chat. I hope you have good weather on your side. Um, somehow, even in Scotland, yes, we have managed to get good weather. Okay. Not, who knows how long it will last, but it's, uh, I've been, for this whole chat, I've been looking out the window and I've been looking at blue skies. Somehow. It's a miracle. That's great. Okay. Okay, so have a great day. Okay, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much. Alright, toodaloo. So that was me talking to Dong Li, translator of The Wild Great Wall, and honestly, what a swell guy. What a fab guy. Really enjoyed that chat. So that's episode 6 reached its end now. So just to reiterate those plugs I gave at the start, you can help support the show on our Patreon. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Watch out for a PayPal where you could give a one-off donation. I'll have that ready pretty soon as well. And I'll put a link to Phony Media, the publishers of The Wild Great Wall, in the show notes. As well as, well, perhaps any other little bonus nuggets I can find. In any case, thank you everyone for listening. Please do subscribe. Please tell anyone who might be interested in the show that they can find us on iTunes or any other major pro- podcast provider. And until then, until next time, Zai Jian.